Welcome to Orion Valley. Hello, film listeners. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium so much. Today, we are going to be doing another diary entry where I take you guys through my letterbox and discuss what films I have watched recently in my free time. We just started doing this new form of content, and I'm very excited. You guys seem to dig it, and uh, I can't wait to do more. So let's get into it. Today, we're going to be talking about all the films I watched during the first half of July, so from July 1st to July 16th, and I believe this is eight films to talk about. So let's dive right in. On July 1st, I went to the theater to see The Black Phone. Uh, This is Scott Derrickson's new um, horror thriller movie starring Ethan Hawke as a child murderer who abducts kids and um, keeps them hidden in a basement. And our main character, Finney, is abducted and and begins to receive messages from this uh, broken phone on the wall. I really enjoyed this movie. I had a great time with it. I really like Scott Derrickson's films. Uh, Sinister is a great horror movie, and I love really pretty much anything Ethan Hawke does. You know, I think he's one of the most likable actors working today, and uh, he always turns in a performance of 110%, and he definitely does here. He's really creepy and, you know, really embodies a villain very well that um, children would be afraid of and would have to face against in this um era of the 70s, I believe this movie takes place in. The movie is, is uh, and not just his performance, but all the child performances are really great. The um, the main characters of Finney and Gwen. Finney's played by Mason Thames, and Gwen is played by Madeline McGraw. Both of them were fantastic. You know, sometimes when you have a film that leans on child performances pretty heavily, it can go either way. It can be really good or it can be really bad. In this case, it's really good. They both do a great job. You feel like they're siblings and they have a good relationship with one another. I really dug their performances, particularly Madeline McGraw. She's got a lot of really good funny moments, but also some good emotional stuff. Um, but the film rests on the shoulders of Mason Thames, and I think he really knocks it out of the park of this kid trying to escape this really dark, devastating situation that he's in. I also think the movie's paced really well, like the way that information is given to us and the mystery starts to unfold um, around the characters. I found really interesting. Derrickson does a lot of fun stylistic choices to keep the pace moving and to keep you invested. And it was just all around like a really fun time. Uh, I gave it four stars. I gave it a like. I think my only issue with it, or my probably my biggest issue, is um, I think James Ransone's character could have been just excluded from the film entirely he kind of comes in like halfway and mainly to give a very specific piece of information that probably could have been given elsewhere i understand that him and scott derrickson are you know buddy buddy and he wants to you know give his friend a role in his movie and that's great but he just felt kind of unnecessary he was a little annoying um and just kind of out of left field kind of took me out of it a little bit especially you know when the 45 minutes before was moving so well. I will say there was one performance in uh, in the movie that I that I was not a big fan of, and that was uh, Miguel Cazares Mora. Apologies if I mispronounced your name. He plays the friend Robin. Um, he feels like a good friend. You can feel like he's the cool kid in school, but his performance is kind of flat a little bit. I will say. 
Um, the film also doesn't give you all of the information you're looking for. I think at times, like I left the theater and I was like, so what does this mean? And what does this mean? It doesn't necessarily ruin the movie, but it definitely left me scratching my head a little bit. I was expecting them to explain certain things that they ended up not explaining. Um, I don't think it's that that much of a detriment to the movie personally, but it is worth noting, you know, that there are certain things that are key to the story that don't end up getting explained. Um, I also think the whole side plot with Jeremy Davies, who plays the dad, Terrence Shaw, is uh, is pretty over the top. And I understand what they're trying to do with that character in terms of the story. And it's I'm not against it, but it doesn't really come full circle at the end. It just kind of stops at a point. And it kind of feels like the filmmakers forgot about that storyline because it's so heavily focused on in the first act. It feels like it just kind of fell flat. But again, nothing to really ruin my experience uh, of watching the movie. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, since we're talking about it, I might as well say the last film that I watched in this time period on June 16th was also The Black Phone. I went to go see it again. I went to see it on a date. And it was just as good the second time as it was the first time. Uh, my date really enjoyed it, too. Um, it was a really fun time at the movies. The second time, honestly, was a little bit more fun just because the theater was packed. And I loved, you know, a packed theater for a horror movie, so that was really good. But the first time I saw it, I was alone. And sometimes, you know, I go see movies on, like, you know, a weekday afternoon, so there's not going to be, like, as much people there as, you know, a weekend evening. But I do enjoy a good private screening every once in a while. So I was excited for a private screening, and, like, 40 minutes into the movie, this couple comes in and sits, like, diagonal from me. And I think they were either theater hopping... Or like they went, they put their kids in another movie and they were waiting for that movie to be done or something. I'm not sure. But they came in like 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes into the movie and they just watched the rest of the movie. And they were like chatting some at some points and like playing things on their phone. It was kind of annoying. And uh, I almost said something, but right before it got to the point where I would say something, they stopped and they were quiet for the rest of the movie. So while annoying, again, didn't ruin the experience. Um, but overall, I very much enjoyed The Black Phone. So uh, so nice, I saw it twice. Um, I gave it four stars and a like both times. Highly recommend checking that out if you haven't yet. On July 3rd, I took a trip up to uh, Ithaca, New York, where I went to school, Ithaca College, and I was visiting um, a buddy of mine, a uh, former film guest, uh, Brian Power, and we decided to go see Minions, The Rise of Gru, I am not the biggest Minion fan. I have really no attachment to the Despicable Me franchise. I thought the first one was fine. I thought the second one was like probably equally as fine. I didn't like the standalone Minions movie. So I was not ex I wasn't planning on seeing this in theaters like at all, but we wanted something just kind of light and fun. Um, and I definitely uh, was under the influence a little bit when I saw this. So I ended up having a bit of a fun time. I, I will not lie. I didn't hate myself watching it. I you can see everything that was coming. It was incredibly predictable. Uh, I gave it two and a half stars. I didn't give it a like. It was just one of those experiences that, like, okay, the time passed. It was fine. I wasn't mad watching it or frustrated or anything. So, I, you know, that's definitely a plus. I will say the best part of the movie is that there is a character um, that is a fighting nun called Nunchuck, which is great, and uses a crucifix as a nunchuck. And she gets around by uh, ascending and descending from heaven, 
which seems like the most inconvenient, like, superhero thing, you know? <laughs> like, I also thought, like, judging by the poster, the movie was going to be trippier than it actually was. I feel like a lot of animated sequels recently have gone the trippy route, um, but this one wasn't trippy, surprisingly. Um, but it was fine. It, it was perfectly acceptable and kind of whatever. I'm never going to return to it or think about it again, probably. So if you're looking for something to like kind of sit your kids down in front of for 90 minutes, there could be worse. Uh, on the same day after Minions of the Rise of Gru, me and him watched the 2005 Fantastic Four film, uh, which I watched a lot as a kid. Specifically the first one. I think I only saw the second one once in theaters and I like never returned to it. But I watched this one a lot and I gave it two stars. We definitely had a good time riffing on it while watching it. There are worse superhero movies to watch than this one, I think. Um, this one is like stupid, goofy, and just kind of doesn't work altogether. Like the pieces just don't fit for this movie. Um, but it is a good portrait of where superhero movies were in the 2000s which is kind of like a really nostalgic personal era of superhero movies for me. I think especially because I'm so sick of the formula that they've fallen into in recent years that the 2000s era feels kind of like, oh, I'm actually having fun watching these movies. Um, that's not to say that this movie's good. I would not say it's good. It's just a mess and an interesting thing to look at. It has terrible effects. It has awful acting. It has a, a cast of characters that don't fit together at all. Like, the Fantastic Four is, is Jessica Alba, Chris Evans, Yoan Griffith, and Michael Chiklis. Like, that doesn't make any sense. There's no acting style that overlaps there. Michael Chiklis is just the angry guy. Chris Evans is, like, hotshot, cool guy Chris Evans that he ended up parodying in Scott Pilgrim. Yoan Griffith is, like, an, a classically trained actor. And Jessica Alba is Jessica Alba. Like, I don't know what the connection between any of these characters are. It doesn't make any sense. They have no chemistry with each other. The effects are really bad, especially with um, Jessica Alba as the as Invisible Woman. Like, it just does not work. But the worst offender, and we should absolutely stop doing this, is stretchy skin. Mr. Fantastic Special Effects is so gross. Just, like, skin, like, when his hand goes under the door and he stretches his face to shave. It's so gross. We need to learn from our mistakes, people. We need to stop doing this, okay? That's one of the biggest reasons why the 2015 movie just didn't work. This superhero team, I just don't think works on screen at all. I mean, yes, I don't care about the Fantastic Four, but they've tried it on screen four times now, and none of them have worked. So I say that having not seen the Roger Corman movie, so maybe you know, I could be wrong. But Fant Four Stick is god-awful. The sequel to this is even worse. This is definitely the best attempt, and it's still not very good. This movie also moves at breakneck pace. It literally wastes no time. Like, they're in space. Like, everything, like, all of the in space getting their powers, like, you know, happens within the first 10 minutes. It's so fast. They, like, make sure you waste no time. You don't have to think about anything. You're just moving. And they, like, just don't care if you have a moment to breathe. It's unbelievable how fast this movie moves. And it's, like, an hour and 45 minutes. So I guess in that sense, it's I'm very grateful for that. But, it, like, it's just, like, insane how fast this movie moves. And there's a lot of unintentionally very funny parts in it. Um, it does essentially kind of feel like a TV movie. Um, you know, I do appreciate the practical effects on uh, on the thing, since it's like an actual suit. Um, but yeah, the actual CGI stuff is, is very bad. Um, so I gave that two stars, but we had a fun time uh, riffing on it. 
And it was just a great, you know, little excursion up to Ithaca. Great to see my buddy Brian. The four days later, on July 7th, uh, I went to the theater with my uh, brother's girlfriend Morgan to see Elvis. I'd been waiting to see this for, um, you know, a few weeks now. I, uh, I am a massive fan of Elvis, having grown up with him and, you know, listened to his music so much, like, was very... I like kind of idolized him as a kid, and it's been interesting, you know, as growing up, you know, realizing the who, who the true figure was and the controversy surrounding him, um, and the discussions about you know cultural appropriation and borrowing music from cult from uh, black culture and black music. Um, you know, I acknowledge all of that, but it's hard for me to also just discredit the uh, nostalgia and love that I had for him as a as a kid. But all that being said, I was very excited for this. Even though I'm not the biggest Baz Luhrmann fan, I was excited to see what Austin Butler was going to do. I heard he was singing, which is great. And, um, you know, again, nostalgia. You know, I enjoy this era of Elvis or like the era of Elvis that I'm like used to, which is the early years. And I was just kind of excited to see that. Um, And uh, but I was going in with a bit of apprehension since I'm not the biggest Baz fan. And I was also not, uh, I was very worried as to what Tom Hanks was going to be doing. But uh, I went in with an open mind. And I sat there, and two hours and 40 minutes later, I emerged from the theater incredibly exhausted. This movie was so overwhelming and disappointing. I did not like it at all. I was tired. Like, the movie was just constantly in the second act. It was always in like montage form. It does not give you a second to breathe or like process the information that you're given. It was like really frustrating because I wanted a movie. You know, I wanted characters. I wanted relationships. There are no relationships to be found in this movie at all. Like they just kind of breeze over the Memphis Mafia part. Luke Bracey shows up out of nowhere after they just skip over all of his Hollywood years. And it's this guy named Jerry and Elvis is yelling at Jerry. And it's just like, who the fuck is Jerry? Where did Jerry come from? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And yeah, there's no, like, there's no relationships to anybody. I'm just so confused as to, that's like a big problem I have with like a lot of modern music biopics from the last like four or five years is that they're not good at making characters seem like characters. You know, it's the problem with Rocket Man. It's the problem with Bohemian Rhapsody. None of the characters feel like they're actually in a story because we're focusing so heavily on, you know, the the musician figure and just making the music scenes look cool that we don't focus on the actual storytelling. And there are some music sections in here that I did enjoy. I definitely think the movie is worth seeing for the trouble scene, the if I can dream scene, like the whole 68 special section and the uh, the first appearance of him performing where he does, um, come on, baby, let's play house. All of those scenes are really well done. Suspicious minds at the end. Everything else surrounding it, like they just breeze past it. Like they breeze past his uh, his relationship with Priscilla. And I think that's a pretty key, important like moment in the history of Elvis. They're trying to just go through all of the cliff notes as fast as possible and cram so much information that it's not focused. You know, it's like, all right, he met Priscilla. Let's not focus on the fact that she was like extremely young. Let's just move past that. Um, he had a Hollywood career, and then they just like skip through that in like thirty seconds. And you know, that's a significant part of his career. It's seven years where he wasn't making music and he was just making shitty movies. Um, you know, the, the movie just doesn't give you, like, it's just so visually penetrating. And combine that with bad CGI 
and horrible Tom Hanks makeup. It just is not fun to look at. And the performances don't, like, I don't know. Tom Hanks is awful in this movie. He's so bad. Talk about learning from our mistakes. We should never let Tom Hanks do accents. He can't do them, all right? Forrest Gump is memeable. His Boston accent in Catch Me If You Can is atrocious. The terminal accent that he's doing, I don't even know what that is, is just like laughably annoying. He is awful here. He looks gross. He sounds bad. He's the narrator of this story for some reason. I don't know why he's the focus. Like the movie is constantly trying to take my attention away from Elvis and focus on Colonel Tom Parker. And I don't know why. And I want to focus on Elvis because Austin Butler is given 110% and he's fucking nailing it. He embodies this character. He's doing a great physical performance. When he actually is able to sing, he sounds really good. Like he sings actually for like the first like actor half of the movie. And then the second half, they just have him lip sync. Like the whole 68 special is him lip syncing to the original recordings of Elvis. And it's like, why? He already proved that he can sound good and make it sound like his own thing in the beginning. Why aren't we having him do that here? It would have been so much more powerful, and instead that makes it feel more like impersonation than an actual performance. Did we not learn, again, learning from our mistakes, did we not learn from the fact that, um, you know, everyone like went up in arms because Rami Malek was lip-syncing in Bohemian Rhapsody? That won him an Oscar? Like, what the fuck? Like, come on. Austin Butler deserves better. I hope this is not the end of his career. I hope he doesn't get stuck in this rut. I hope he continues to be a leading man and does some really cool projects, because I think he is worthy of doing so. He's a fantastic actor. And I really loved watching him do what he does in this movie. But the movie is constantly shifting its focus away from him. And it's unfortunate. And I just did not like it. Also, literally call it any, anything else. You're just going to call it Elvis? I know this is the first like modern big screen biopic about Elvis. But call it literally anything else. Both the TV movie and the TV miniseries from the early 80s and the early 2000s were both called Elvis. Call it something else. I don't know. I know The King was already a movie. But like... I don't know, call it Suspicious Minds, or call it fucking something, I don't know. I just, I was so disappointed by this movie, and um, Morgan and I were just like, so tired when we left. Not good. So I gave that two stars, I didn't give it the like. Glad to see it in the theater, glad the theater had a lot of people in it. That That is a positive, I will say. Two days later, on July 9th, I was hanging out with my buddy Will, and uh, we've been doing this, like, kind of, when we do our movie nights, we've been trading who picks the movie and oftentimes if I'm picking it I want to expose him to some new uh, movie in his eyes or like an important movie or a you know a pretty popular one he's been wanting to see when he picks it we end up kind of just picking a bad movie to talk through um, and I love doing both we, we, we love doing both um, but uh, it was my turn to pick and uh, we've been talking about showing this to him for a while because he's a big fan of the deuce and we watched boogie nights it was his first time seeing it, and um, it was really special to watch him uh, experience everything in Boogie Nights for the first time. I've seen it, you know, like four or five times. Uh, this was a rewatch for me, and uh, it just gets better every time you watch it. Like, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, is this my favorite PTA movie? But I'm like, no, I think The Master is still my favorite, but... Um, this movie is incredible. I gave it five stars. I gave it the like. It's just the more I watch it, the more I'm, like, so grateful that it actually exists and it's really fun to show it to somebody who has never seen it before. Um, you know, I think that goes for anything special that you enjoy. Like when you show it to somebody you love, you want them to feel the same way that you do. And I mean, he wasn't like, you know, over the moon excited about it, but he like really enjoyed it. And that was really exciting to see. 
and you know this movie just means so much to me and uh, i can't wait to do an episode on it at some point um but it, this movie's just a feat you know i understand that it's incredibly inspired by goodfellas and scorsese and all of the filmmaking techniques that he perfected and it's clearly like a study in someone learning and re- replicating the masters but it still is such a feat and feels like a paul thomas anderson movie um and like an early obviously like an early paul thomas anderson movie it being his second film but i just i love every single thing about this movie and it uh it's it only rewards you with age and rewatch so if you haven't seen boogie nights in a while i highly recommend doing so i'm sure we're going to do an episode on it at some point um but yeah it's it's one of my favorites five stars big old like it's the best Next day, July 10th, I went for a, uh, a first watch because I'm currently working on a new short film and uh, with my buddy, and he was very inspired by this movie um, with the current project we're working on, and I had never seen it, so I figured it was time to finally check this off my list. The Coen Brothers' first film, Blood Simple, from 1984. This is a favorite among other filmmakers, I think, and uh, because of that, I was excited to delve into it and really see you know, where the Coen brothers started. I love the Coen brothers, but I realized that I am much more well-versed in their modern stuff. Before this, I hadn't seen Blood Simple. I haven't seen Raising Arizona or, um, or Barton Fink, but you know, I love the, I love like Fargo and No Country and Big Lebowski and under, um, and Inside Lewin Davis. So I was really, um, intrigued by this movie and that it's kind of like a neo-noir dark comedy kind of crime thriller I was I'm very interested in the idea of the first feature so I wanted to see where they started and this movie is dynamite it's so good I gave it four and a half stars the like I was just infatuated by it like it's so cool to see that this is like the Coen brothers blueprint for the rest of their career like they're so like it opens on aerial shots of Texas that's the same opening as No Country for Old Men it's so cool to see like where they started and how their interest and voice has always lied in the same place and that this has enough goofy, like ridiculously dark, damaged characters in it to know that it's a Coen Brothers movie. They find themselves in situations that could be funny but are also incredibly dark. I love the performances. M. Emmett Walsh in this is just a fucking madman and is a really cool figure to follow throughout this story. It's incredibly simple, I mean, given the title, but the story itself is very bare bones but so intriguing in its pacing and the tension and, uh, you know, it, it's it's a cat and mouse game in a way. And again, that was then echoed in Fargo and Big Lebowski and No Country. And it's just so interesting. And it's not just the fact that it all started here and that makes it good, but it's actually like a really well-made, interesting movie. Like Frances McDormand is in this movie and she's really great. Like I said, M.M. at Walsh. And it was just so entertaining. Like, it was so interesting. And, I, and it's very quick. It's like 95 minutes or something like that. Has a lot of visual symbolism. And it's just really cool to see how good filmmakers they were, they were early on and how their style has stayed with them. Um, and, yeah, so four and a half stars. Gave it the like. I, I can't wait to watch it again. I watched that earlier in the night. And so I uh, ended the night by uh, watching a short film. On, uh, on Criterion, they have the um, the three by Eagle Pinnell collection. Last uh, diary entry, I mentioned that I had watched his film um, last night at the Alamo. And I wanted to watch the other things that they have in there. 
and they have a like his first big short film that he made, which is called A Hell of a Note. I think I mentioned this on the last diary entry. This movie is like 30 minutes, I think. It's about a couple of friends who get fired from their job as um, they're like roof cleaners or something. I wasn't really sure. Um, and they end up going to a bar and kind of drowning their, you know, sorrows and excitement in, uh, in beers. And, uh, you know, chaos kind of ensues from there. I really liked it. I gave it three and a half stars. It was very interesting. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of ideas that are, you know, carried over from this to Last Night at the Alamo that I really enjoyed. You know, these characters just hanging out, these very interesting figures who think they have it all figured out and making moves for themselves and seeing the kind of fallout from those decisions, like with their significant others or with people that they meet. You know, this has characters and actors from Last Night at the Alamo that I mentioned, particularly, um, you know, Lou Perryman and uh, Sonny Carl Davis. You know, I just like hanging out in this world. I like the world that um, Eagle Pinnell is known for and, you know, started in the um, in the late 70s and early 80s. But I enjoy just being in the world, and I, I honestly think it could have been feature length, and I would have loved it even more. Um, I think there was some more ideas that they could have expanded upon. I don't necessarily know if it could have been feature length, but, like, if this was, like, an hour, I think they could have, like, really gone deeper into the world and made it even more tragic than it ends up being. But I really enjoyed it. I, I liked it. Um, I'm really liking the Eagle Pinnell stuff. I'm excited to watch the whole shooting match. Maybe I'll cover that in the next, uh, in the next diary entry. We'll see. Um, but yeah, a uh, hell of a note. Three, uh, three and a half stars. It's a, it's a hell of a short film. <laughs> and, uh, all right. And the final film we're going to be talking about, as I said, on July 16th, I rewatched the black phone. So I already covered that. But, uh, the day before on July 15th, I watched F for fake. Orson Welles' quasi-documentary about forgery, fakery, and trickery. In this movie, if you're unfamiliar, he examines the lives of an art forger named Elmir and Clifford Irving, who became famous or infamous for um, writing a fake autobiography of Howard Hughes. And um, this movie is incredibly interesting. It, It honestly hurt my head. Um, I started watching it like a few months ago and I only got like 30 minutes in before I ended up falling asleep, not because of the movie, but because I was just really tired. So I wanted to return to it. So I started it from the beginning and I didn't honestly remember all that much. Yeah. This movie is like really fucks with you because it's flip flops between documentary and fiction so seamlessly and you're not really sure what to believe or what information to follow because they throw so much information at you. And it is overwhelming a little bit because you're trying to follow the intricacy of the story mixed with the in that shit insanity that is the editing in this movie that's so quick but so well-timed and you're also dealing with Orson Welles kind of grappling with his own psyche and his own career and what he believes is real and what is fake it's quite the document it is quite the film I really enjoyed it that's why I gave it four stars Um, but it definitely it's tough to absorb the information as a documentary because of how much of flip-flops between fact and fiction and really tests you on what you believe and what you don't believe, um, and again, what is real and what isn't. But I think that's a good first viewing for this movie. I think that's intentional, and it's going to take a few more times to finally, you know, understand what's going on and, um, you know, what Wells is really trying to accomplish. And I don't mean that in a way that makes the film sound sloppy, because it definitely isn't, um, but it's so challenging. But it also is the essence of so much modern content, I feel, of like conspiracy theorists and um, 
video essays and um, YouTube reviews and online criticism. It's so interesting. And I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, this movie started that started at all, but I think that this movie was ahead of its time in that sense because it is like a, an, you know, a really long video essay that really fucks with the audience. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's confident in it and it knows what it's doing. It's just an insane movie. Like I said, it definitely hurt my head a little bit, but I am very much excited to uh, to return to it in the future. So yeah, I gave that four stars, and that is the end of this diary entry. I think we got some good films in there, a healthy medium between good films and bad films, I think, in the first uh, few weeks of July. But yeah, so that's it for this diary entry. I'm going to have another one for you guys coming out um, soon about the second half of July, so just stay tuned for that. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying these diary entries. I'm definitely having a lot of fun doing them. I'd love to know what you guys are watching, so reach out to me on social media or comment below and let me know what you guys have been watching. Come follow us on social media, um, on social media on Facebook, Frankly I Love Movies, same for Instagram, Frankly I Love Movies, and then we're on Twitter, Frankly underscore podcast. Still recording some new episodes, um, so those will be coming out very soon, but uh, for now just be on the lookout um, for the next diary entry, which will be about the second half of July, from July 18th all the way to the end, uh, the 31st. Once again, I hope you guys enjoyed. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies.